All right, good morning, Redemption Church. Uh, so excited to be with you today. If you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open it up to Psalm 118. That's where we're going to be. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm one of our college pastors here. I have the privilege of leading Salt St. Paul. We love that ministry. That's student section right here. Amazing. Okay, excited to jump in with you guys. So if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open up to Psalm 118. But as you turn there, about a year ago, my wife and I made a big decision to make a huge automotive upgrade, okay? I used to drive a 2011 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Horrible maintenance, okay? <laughs> Never buy a Jeep. That's, not, that's for free. Had a Jeep Grand Cherokee. It was a 5.0 V8, very pretty. Thought I was going to work in finance. I'm not. Okay. About a year ago, we made a massive upgrade. So I upgraded from a 2011 Jeep Grand Cherokee to a 2003 Toyota Matrix. Yes, great car, I've got a picture of him. His name's Marty, Marty the Matrix. He's an incredible vehicle. I once heard it said, contentedness is loving what you already have. I am content, okay? Marty, he's my best friend. Anyways, here's the thing about Marty. One downside of Marty is that he's a manual, okay? Not just in transmission, literally everything about him is a manual, okay? <laughs> Nothing about him is automatic. My thing that's supposed to play music just says, no service. <laughs> Anyways, it's just aftermarket, it's a piece of crap. Anyways, I love my car, it's great. Let me compare and contrast Marty the Matrix with a Tesla Model X. Ooh, it's the SUV with the doors that open like wee, you know, it's incredible. Let me compare and contrast, and Marty is, you know, he's manual in every way. Tesla Model X, you don't even have to unlock your car. You just walk by it and it opens up for you, like it's your butler, amazing, okay? You don't even have to drive it. Autopilot, can you imagine the road trips? You just have to be like, oh my gosh, look around, you know, and you'll be safe. Here's my stretch. You guys know it's coming. Faithfulness to Jesus is like driving Marty. Okay, let me explain, I know, I know, here's why. Faithfulness to Jesus, there's nothing about it that's autopilot. There's nothing about it that's automatic. Everything about it is manual. Why do I say that? I'll get serious. I say that because I think that many people get into Christianity thinking like it's going to be autopilot, when in reality it's actually incredibly hard. I think a lot of people enter into a relationship with Jesus and they think that walking with Jesus for 50 years faithfully is easy. It means that their life's actually going to get better. You know, it's the health and wealth, you know what I mean? Hotter and richer. That's what they think is going to happen if you follow Jesus. This leads to something called disillusionment, where what you expected and what you were sold is different from what you've experienced. As a college pastor, I sit down with students all the time who are experiencing this disillusionment. And they begin by talking about how they've begun to deconstruct their faith story. They used to go to church when they were younger, but they left church. And the reason why they left church is rarely because they found a better ideological framework for life. It's not because they like listen to the new atheists and they're like, oh, sociologically speaking, Jesus is not very well. Like none of that, okay? It's always because they had an experience that was different from their expectation. They used to follow God when they had the perfect pathway in life. They used to want Jesus before their parents got divorced. They used to think that he was good before they had a grandmother that passed away from cancer. We have sold a generation of Christians a vision of walking with Jesus that isn't actually true. And Redemption Church, I do not want us to be people who are disillusioned. I want us to be people who understand that faithfulness is a fight for your soul. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 118. 
Here are the three ways that I think we can fight for faithfulness, okay? That we can fight for faithfulness, fight the fight of our souls. Number one is to fight through declaration. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to place the truth of God over the description of our feelings. Second thing we're going to talk about is to fight to rejoice. Listen, guys. I don't want to be a grumbly Christian, okay? I want to be 70 and happy. You know what I'm saying? Like, just joyful, yes. Terry Langland, I've never seen him sad, ever, okay? I want to be like that. How do we have a joyful, faithfulness life? Yes, it is hard, but how do we hold on to joy in the midst of a difficult life? Point three, fight for fresh eyes. Disillusionment in seeing the world for all that there is, and let me tell you, life is suffering. So all, if, you can, if all you can see is the suffering around this world, you will become disillusioned. But if you see the way that God is providentially weaving together suffering for our good, then you have a chance to see with fresh eyes this morning. Okay, open up your Bibles to Psalm 118. Let's begin in verse 1. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to fight through declaration. Verse 1 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And let Redemption Church say, wow, look at that. We got some liturgy this morning. Very exciting. All right, heads up. Point one is kind of long, but point two and three fly, okay? And I'm going to do something a little unconventional. So let me just kind of pick up the cover for you. This is how you preach text, okay? I'm going to take a little preaching seminar, and then we're going to get it back in the sermon. Here's how you do it. You take, the biblical, you take the biblical principle, you teach it. You're like, oh, yes, faithfulness, yes, be faithful. Three ways on how to be faithful. Oh, my gosh, amazing. And then at the end, you show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the faithfulness. So the gospel message is something like, you ain't faithful, but he is. <laughs> Original sin angle, yes, we all love that one. Second angle is empowerment, right? You can't be that faithful, but Jesus can be faithful for you. You know, it's the spirit in you, yes. So you normally what you do, especially with Old Testament texts, is you teach the biblical principle and then you land it in Jesus. Okay, today I'm going to break the cardinal rule of preaching and I'm going to start with Jesus, okay? So don't be disappointed by my conclusion, all right? I'm going to start with Jesus. And the reason why I'm starting with Jesus is because this psalm in particular, it matters a lot who it's about and when it was sung. The context matters incredibly much for Psalm 118 because Psalm 118 may be one of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible if you understand it rightly. My goal is not just to preach about a beautiful psalm. I want it to be breathtaking to you. I want you to leave this place and say, Jesus Christ is my cornerstone and he is stinking beautiful and he is worthy of my whole life. Here's a, here's a threefold context. If you're a note taker, here's how we start. Psalm 118 was written about a thousand years before Jesus. We don't exactly know the writer, but everyone assumes it's David because classic, okay? Let's just assume it is. David wrote Psalm 118. And in classic David fashion, he's like, oh my gosh, everyone's trying to kill me, okay? That's like every other psalm. He's like, oh my gosh, people are trying to kill me. I'm like, oh, David, <laughs> so many enemies. That's his situation. He has present peril, right? He's like, everyone's trying to get at me. I'm trying to escape from all these arrows. So he's in a place of present peril as he writes this psalm. Fast forward 500 years. Psalm 118 is sung by the Israelites as a redemptive song as they rebuild the second temple. After 70 years of captivity, slavery, trauma, and oppression, as the people who once heralded the word of God are now dead, as the temple they once worshiped is now destructed, they are gonna sing about the forever love of God. That's crazy. Hold that in your pocket. Third lower context. I know, this is a lot of context. Fast forward another 500 years. 
this is the last song by which Jesus sung before he was crucified. At the last meal, the Passover meal in the upper room, this is the final song of the Hillel Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 is the songs that Jesus would have sung in the Passover meal before he becomes crucified. So in light of that context, imagine with me, you are sitting at the table with Jesus. He knows that he's about to be hung on a cross for our sins. He knows that he is about to be whipped, beaten, and brutalized. And then these are the words that come out of his mouth. Let me reread verses one through four through that contextual lens. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. David says he is good in his present circumstance as enemies try to kill him. Israel says he is good in reflection of 70 years of slavery and bondage. Jesus says he is good in his future circumstance of the cross for his steadfast love endures forever. This is not a celebratory psalm on the good times of David, Israel, and Jesus. This is a declarative psalm that God is good. Okay, what do we need to learn from this point? We need to understand that this is a specific psalm where David, Israel, and Jesus have something more important than the description of their feelings. Let me make it clear. This is not descriptive of how David's feeling right now. He's not like, oh my gosh, his steadfast. He's like, people are trying to kill me, okay? I'm panicking. Israel does not feel that God's love is good. In fact, these people who are singing this psalm might not have even remembered the idea of God. They would have heard the idea that Yahweh was with them, but they didn't have a temple to worship. So they were declaring what was true over what they felt. Jesus was declaring the definitive truths of God over describing his feelings. Okay, what's the principle that we need to learn from this? We need to learn how to value the declarative truths of God over the description of our feelings. We need to learn what it looks like to speak to ourselves, not just listen to ourselves. Okay, application for this point. I want you to take out your phone, a notebook or something like that. You don't, you don't have to, but you know, it'd be helpful for the sake of this experiment. Take out a phone, take out a notebook, and I want you to start writing down some of the present perils you're dealing with, much like David. Maybe for you, in your current mind, it's the doubt in your mind. It's the fear in your heart. It's the lack of intimacy with him. I want you to write down the present perils you feel like David. And then I want you to start writing down some of your past perils like Israel. Some of the hardest ways to believe that God is good is not just in your present moments, but in your past. And there are certain things in your past that you will struggle to believe that God is good in. And then I want you to write down the fears of your future, the unknown of the job that you just lost, whether or not you guys can have kids as a single person, whether or not God will come through for you in marriage, if that's your desire, whatever it is, I want you to write down the present, the past, and the future, and then next to those things, maybe this is an exercise for you this week, I want you to write the word yet. I am struggling with lust yet. I'm discouraged that we've been trying for two years and haven't gotten pregnant yet. I don't understand why my parents got divorced when I was seven years old yet. And then I want you to write down this week, his steadfast love endures forever. I want us to be a people 
This is not naivety. This is not ignorance that leads to bliss. This is saying to God what is true about what we feel, yet having a declarative truth about who he is that overrides that truth. What if this week we just started saying that in our language, in our hearts, and our minds, this is what I'm feeling, and yet his steadfast love endures forever. This is point one of the sermon. If we want to fight for faithfulness, I think we need to get into the habit of declaring what is true and prioritizing that over what we feel. Okay, point two. If we want to fight for faithfulness, is we need to fight to rejoice. Look with me at verse 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And I know this is cheating, but I have the NLT of verse 15 as well. So good. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. Okay. In light of the context that we understand from David, the Israelites, and Jesus, here's what we learn from these verses, that in every season, there are reasons to rejoice. Why? Because the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Okay, think about David's situation, right? He didn't die yet, you know, in this psalm, right? He didn't die. His enemies were shooting arrows at him. They were trying to kill him. And yet the Lord, his right hand, had covered David. Think about the Israelites. Very easily, they could have been wiped away from human history. No more temple. No more recognition of Yahweh. No more Torah. Very easily, the captivity and enslavement of Babylon could have wiped them off the face of the earth. But time and time again, God's right hand cared for the people of Israel as a remnant. They were still existing. Think about Jesus. The, the gospel in this psalm, is, it's like all over the place. So it's kind of hard to define exactly where it is because it's the whole thing. I shall not die. I shall live. Think about that. He's reading this at the Last Supper knowing he's about to die, talking to his disciples and being like, I shall not die, I shall live. Complete assurance of the resurrection that would take place after the crucifixion. That's the beauty of David, Israel, and Jesus is that even in a horrendous season, even in an incredibly impossible circumstance, they had reason to rejoice because of the right hand of the Father was with them. See, the truth about being a Christian is that rejoicing doesn't come naturally. It's something we have to fight for because we in our flesh tend to just look at all the negatives. Like, I do that. I don't know if you feel that way, but I'm like so cynical. I'm like, oh, negative everywhere. Okay, <laughs> that's how I feel. We need to ask our souls to be leaned towards the truth of the rejoicing that we have in Christ. And here's why we can rejoice as Christians in horrible seasons because we can lose everything in this life. Our 401ks, our dream house, in this market, all of our dream houses. <laughs> you just can't find one. I'm like, please, just something that has a roof. That's how it feels. Maybe your dream job, maybe your desired relationship, maybe even things that are so hard, like your family coming to know Jesus. We, we can lose everything. 
but in Christ, there's one thing we can't lose, and that's our lives. Tell Keller, this is one of my favorite quotes from him. Very simple. He says, all death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. This is the crazy thing about this quote is he said this years before he died. And he's living this now. Like his life is actually better now. He died in his 70s with pancreatic cancer where every day was a struggle to even get up and move. And in one second, he went from that to an infinitely better life. Enjoying Jesus fully. Not having anything to worry about. None of the stressors and sorrows and sin of this world taking over his mind. He is completely free. That's the truth of Tim Keller's life. The reality for you, Christian, is if you are in Christ, you can lose everything in this life. Your dreams, your ambitions, your hopes, but you can't lose one thing. And that's the life that Jesus has given you. See, for Christians, here's what we find, is the worst thing that could ever happen to us as humans is death, but death is just a doorway for us, is it not? We get to go see Jesus. So how can we have joy? We need to actually trust that that's true. We need to believe verse 17, as Jesus did at the Last Supper, I shall not die, I will live. And then we can have immense joy in the midst of suffering. Okay, why is this so important? This is so important because joy is the fuel to our faithfulness. Listen, guys, especially for our college students, our young adults, all this kind of stuff, I hope we walk with Jesus faithfully for 60 years. Like, I hope at 80 you're more faithful than you are now, right? I want that for us. I want us to be able to look back at a life lived with faithfulness. But here's the problem. Life is too hard to grit your way towards that vision. Grit and grumble your way. Like, have you ever met those people that are just mad at everything? Like, oh, like, the sun, it's too hot today. It's like, what? Okay. We live in Minnesota. Like, we should be thankful. That's how I feel. I think we can either become people who have a joy in our hearts for 60 years pursuing faithfulness or will become angry at everything and cynical. I was, uh, I've been watching ultra marathon documentaries recently. So good. Oh, my gosh. If you ever want to, like, get up and go on a three-mile walk, watch one of these documentaries. It will, like, you'll be like, I can walk forever. Okay, there's one that's called Where Dreams Go to Die. Ooh, I've watched that three times. YouTube it. It's a good one. Here's the thing. In the ultramarathon community, there's this woman named Courtney DeWalter. And everyone else is, like, super intense, okay? They're all like, oh, my gosh, like, the reason why I run is because, like, um, I'm running from everything else. I'm like, okay, <laughs> too dark, too dark. Okay, I want to be encouraged, not scared. This woman, Courtney DeWalter, is so amazing, okay? She's amazing partly because of her accomplishments. She ran 240 miles. Think about how long it would take you to drive 240 miles. That's like your whole day. You're committing an entire day of your life to that. She ran 248 miles in 58 hours and slept for 21 minutes. Okay, think about that. Don't think about that. That's horrible. <laughs> Why would you do that to yourself? I know. I love watching interviews with Courtney because all the interviews are like, so Courtney, what's, how do you do it? Do you like do hot yoga seven days a week? Do you eat like a vegan plant-based diet only? And then she's like, I don't stretch. I eat nachos and drink beer. And they're like, what? That, that's literally like, are you kidding me? Like, are you lying? They're like, no, seriously. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a science teacher. She's like, what? Okay. Yeah. Here's a tie-in. 
that tie into our sermon today <laughs> is that the answer she gives is that she actually enjoys it. That's it. They're like, how do you last 58 hours running? Don't you hate it? And she's like, no, I actually really like it. Here's a connection. Joy is Courtney DeWalter's superpower to be faithful through 58 hours of pain. Joy is the Christian's superpower to be faithful for 50 years of life. We gotta have this thing. Like, I, I just don't think that Jesus wants us to be grumpy Christians for 50 years. There's no way he died for that. That's like such a bad vision. It's like, I died for you to hate your life for 50 years and then come live with it. It's like, no, I think he came for us to have joy. So how do we do it? How do we restore the joy into our hearts? I think the best verse in the Bible that describes that is restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's amazing how all the tribulations in life are put into perspective when you remind yourself that you're saved. That death is not the end of your story, but it is a doorway unto knowing him. So here's the application. What if this week we just got really good at reminding ourselves that we're saved, okay? It's not profound, but I'm serious. Like sometimes, guys, I, this is some of the stuff I do. I would encourage you to find things that you like to do. Sometimes I just prayer walk downtown Minneapolis where I was an intern and I worked as a valet and I walked by the poorhouse, this disgusting bar where everything is sticky where I got baptized, actually. I walk by that and I'm like, gosh, Jesus, thank you. I walk by the saloon in the gay 90s on Hennepin. I walk to Le Meridian, which is where I was a valet when I was 17 years old, praying about who God, how God would provide for college. I walk through all those different stages of my life and I think back to when I was 17, when I hadn't been to church in four years, when I denounced Christianity, denounced Jesus, I thought Christianity was for dumb people I went to church, I went to youth group, and I met Jesus, and it was the most real thing I'd ever felt in my life. And when I kind of go through memory lane of how Jesus had been, saved me initially, and then saved me from my sin, and saved me from my self-dependence, and saved me from all these different things, you know what like just naturally bubbles up? It's a sense of joy, and a sense of perspective on the tribulations of life. I don't know what that's gonna be for you, but my encouragement today is at least this afternoon, Spend just like two minutes, I'm talking 120 seconds. It doesn't have to be forever. And just like, remember the joy of what it felt like to be saved in Christ. And remember the hope that you have, that verse 17 is your story, that you shall not die, you will live. Okay, that's point three, let's finish it up. We're gonna look at number three. In order for us to fight for faithfulness, we need to fight for fresh eyes. Look at verse 21 with me. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but this is my favorite part. It's so good. The stone that the rejo builders rejected became the cornerstone. Okay. Here's the crazy thing. David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus. This wasn't like two years after Jesus and he can be like, oh, I'm so clever. You know that stone in the corner that everything rests on? No, 1,000 years before Jesus, 500 years before the rebuilding of the temple. That's crazy. How did he know that the builders were gonna reject the stone and they were gonna use it in the second temple? He didn't, but the spirit did, shout outs. Okay, Jesus is good, God is good, you know, the spirit. Okay, whatever, back to the sermon. 
thousand years, thousand years before Jesus came, here's what David says about himself that would actually become prophetic about Jesus, that he was the one who was rejected. Think about how he got anointed. Samuel walks into the, into the you know, MTV cribs of Jesse, and he's like, yo, where are all your boys at? And then he lines them up, and he's like, I don't want any of these guys. And then Jesse's like, I've got one more. <laughs> and he's like, how did you forget about him? That's how the conversation went, for sure. Think about it. Literally, his own dad didn't even think about him. That's rejection. Every step of the way, David gets rejected. At this point, everyone's rejected him because they're trying to kill him. But, you know, rejection upon rejection upon rejection, and yet God redeems the rejected. Part two, 500 years later, the Israelites are rebuilding the second temple. And the builders and authorities are like, Psh, don't use the rubble from the first temple. That stuff sucks. Let's use new stuff. But the priests were like, wait a second. We want a piece of the first temple and the second temple to remember God's faithfulness to us. By temple, by temple, he has been with us. So they take a stone that, by the way, wasn't pretty, wasn't the perfect right angle, wasn't an attractive stone, and put it in this central spot that holds two walls together to show that God had been faithful to them. David prophesied about this as well. Okay, a thousand years later, who is Jesus but the unimpressive, the rejected, the killed cornerstone of our faith? Jesus was rejected in every way. There's like prophecies in Isaiah that basically say you wouldn't look twice at him, okay? <laughs> You'd be like, oh, okay. He didn't have anything physically that would draw us to him. He came from a rejectable background, poor, stonemason by his hands. Like he, he wasn't impressive by every human standard. He was rejected all the way to his cross. His friends rejected him. Everyone left him. And yet God took what was rejected on the death of Jesus and redeemed it for our salvation. We'll come back to this and we'll end there because we have to end with the gospel before we do. Here's an interesting thing about what God does time and time again through human history. He takes the rejected and the rubble and redeems it. Think about the entire story of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 are great. Genesis 3 and forward. I mean, it's just rejected, rejected, rubble, rubble, sin, cursed world. Time and time again. Why does God do it? Because he wants the glory. If, if impressive, amazing, beautiful people were the only ones who got to know God, then God wouldn't be that glorious. But if God time and time again takes the rejected of the world, the rubble of the world, and redeems it, then he receives the glory. I love verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, redemption. It is marvelous in our eyes. I just love this verse because it wasn't marvelous in their eyes, okay? That's what's crazy. It's like David's not like, wow, arrow, whew, beautiful. That's not what he was thinking. The Israelites were like, they're not like looking at 70 years of bondage and slavery and thinking that's marvelous. Jesus wasn't looking at the cross being like, that's going to be a good time. But they had fresh eyes to see what God was doing. So here's what's true. We get to live incredible, hope-filled lives in a broken world because we know that this world is not all that there is, but that Christ is providentially weaving together future, and he is redeeming the rejected and the rubble. One of my pastor friends, his name's Mark. He's actually Drew's friend. He's not my friend, but he's great. He, uh, he's so funny because every time you talk to him, he keeps using the word fascinating to describe things in life. And so he'll be like, 
man, this has been a rough stretch. Fascinating. Like, he'll literally say something, and you're like, what? People are like, yeah, it's just been like such a rough time, but man, isn't that fascinating? I'm like, no. That's, that's what he says. What he's saying is that he actually believes this. He believes that all of the rejection and rubble in his life, in his ministry, in the world, God is actually redeeming. So maybe the question for us isn't, oh gosh, God, what are you doing? But it's like, man, God, you're doing something, aren't you? You're redeeming this, aren't you? Like I know rubble, like think about what rubble is. You just like trip over it, you know, like breaks your toe. Like that's what rubble feels like. Rejection doesn't feel good. Losing your job does not feel good. Your like 18th blind date not working out does not feel good. But you can trust that through all the rejection, rejection and rubble of your life, God is providentially redeeming it all. That's what's true. Uh, this last fall, we were about to kick off. Rachel and I were sitting in Vertical Church, which is kind of a similar auditorium like this. And, you know, you're kind of hoping nothing goes wrong kickoff day because you've been planning for this for like 74 years and you're scared, okay? <laughs> That's what it feels like. So we're waiting, getting ready for kickoff day, all this kind of stuff. Very, like, you know, hopeful. And then Elise, one of our student leaders, calls us. And she's incredible. Elise is getting married to Dylan. They're the best. So cute. Okay. Elise, she calls us. And she's a student at St. Kate's. You guys have ever been to St. Kate's? It's a school in St. Paul, a pretty small school, all women's school, that's very liberal and is quite antagonistic towards Christianity. And what she begins to tell us is that there were students on St. Kate's that were writing articles about how Salt Company was a sex trafficking organization. That because we we're willing to offer food at a large event, it was Chick-fil-A, because we we're willing to offer that, the perception was that we were trying to lure in people to give them food and to traffic them. Now, the initial response is, could there be a worse day for this? No. It sucked. But then, I like experienced some of the fascination. Like, the spirit was just like, wait a second. This is awesome. Not awesome from a worldly sense, but let me explain. And I told Elise, I was like, you know, Elise, this is the story of the gospel. This is the story of the entire Bible. This is the story of every great gospel movement that has ever happened in human history. There's always been crap. Like there's always been bad things that have happened and God has always redeemed the brokenness and made it beautiful in Christ. I was like, Elise, I think God's gonna like really move at St. Kate's this year. Not because we have a great strategy, not because of Salt Company, not because of Chick-fil-A, for sure not because of Chick-fil-A in this specific situation, for sure not. But because where there is rubble and rejection, God will redeem it. And this year, going into next fall, we had two student leaders at a small campus just grinding it out, like just trying to make disciples. And this fall, we're going in with eight student leaders at St. Kate's, which is literally amazing. We're like, whoa, this is like the seeds. Yeah, it's amazing, so cool, thank you. It's very, it's very exciting. But God is doing something at St. Kate's. So I think here's the lens by which we get to live and operate as Christians. Every time we stub our toe on some rubble or get rejected, we get ask the question, what is God doing through this? We get to live with a sense of fascination and say, Father, I want fresh eyes. And so here's my invitation for you guys. This is gonna feel weird, okay? You're not gonna like this. This week, as you start getting bummer news, which feels like all the time, always. Start actually asking the Spirit, Spirit, would you give me fresh eyes? I wanna see your works as marvelous. 
I want to trust your steadfast love. I want to believe that you're redeeming the rubble and rejection in my life. And watch as your life begins to reflect that truth. Okay. As we close our time together, you know how we got to close always with the gospel. Okay. Here's the reality. We started with Jesus because this was a psalm that he sang before he died. But I actually want to end with Jesus because this is what we call a messianic psalm. It's a song that's specifically about Jesus. Fun fact about Psalm 118. It is in the smack dab middle of your Bible. Isn't that fun? About 1,500 verses this way, and then 1,500 verses that way. That's because Jesus is the center of, I don't actually know why, but it's a cool fact. It's a cool fact. Great. This is the beauty of Psalm 118. A thousand years before Jesus would step onto the earth, David understood this reality that it wasn't just going to be him that a stone would be rejected and redeemed. It wasn't just going to be a temple, although he didn't know that either, but it was going to be that Jesus would be the cornerstone for us that everything would hinge upon. He would be the gap. He would be the cornerstone that everything would land upon, that the world itself would land on the good news of the gospel. Spurgeon said this, now he is the bond of the building, holding Jew and Gentile in firm unity. This precious cornerstone binds God and man together in wondrous amity, for he is both in one. He joins earth and heaven together, for he participates in each. He joins time and eternity together, for he was a man of few years, and yet he is the ancient of days, wondrous cornerstone. The good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ is the singular being who holds all of this together, everything we just talked about today. We can be faithful because he is our cornerstone. We can know, believe, and trust that his steadfast love endures forever because he is standing at the right hand of God. We can trust that we will not die, but we will live because when he said it, he knew it was going to be true, and it was. So Redemption Church, here's my hope for us as a church family, that our disposition as Christians would not be disillusionment that leads to deconstruction, but that this family would be known for faithfulness not flashiness, especially as we get into the building, not better production, not cooler faithfulness, that the history of our church for the next 50 years would be young people who raise their hand, everyone, sorry, everyone, who raise their hand and say, I want to be faithful. I want to fight the fight of faithfulness for the rest of my life. And in order to do that, here are the three things I want us to remember. We need to fight through declaration. We need to be people who declare the truths of God over the description of our feelings. We need to fight to rejoice. Let's not grumpy and grit our way through the next season of our church life, right? Let's be joyful. Let's remember the joy of our salvation. And third, let's have fresh eyes. Let's see that all the rubble and rejection in our lives, God is redeeming for his glory and our good. Let me pray that would be true of us. Man, Father, I, I'm so thankful that you sent a son to be our cornerstone. That what David was prophesying about, that one day there would be a cornerstone that would hold the temple together, that one day there would be a cornerstone that would hold the world together. As he was prophesying about those things, he knew in a glimmer what we see clearly now. We trust you, Jesus 
that as you sang these songs the night before you died, as you sang these songs over the Passover meal, that you knew that you would not die, but that you would live. Father, I want to believe that today. I want to hold that tightly, that my joy comes not from an easy and comfortable life, comes not from finding the dream house or having the most amount of money or having a comfortable environment, but my joy comes from believing those words, I will not die, I will live. I want to follow in the footsteps of men like Tim Keller who trusted and believed that death was not the end of the story but a doorway into eternal life. Father, thank you that you did not come to make our lives better. You came to make us new. Father, help us to have fresh eyes. Help us to be faithful and help us to fight the fight to the end of the age. In your mighty name we pray, amen.